If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Luke chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 12 down through chapter 6, verse 11. There's notes there if you want to use them. Um, I don't follow them. I mean, I kind of follow them, but not point by point, you understand. But it's there if you want to look at it. Several of the teens and children have been up to Camp Calvary in the summer. It's a great camp. It has one terrible problem, though. Flies. Am I right? Teens, have you been up there when, when the flies are? It, it is just, now, some years have been better than others. They've come up with ways to try to get rid of the flies and so forth. But honestly, it's like a breeding place for flies sometimes. Now, I'm not against it. Come, come in the summer. It's a good place. But, but I can't tell you, you know, years ago, I, I speak there almost every summer, but I can't tell you how often I would be, years ago before they had it under control, you'd be up there trying to speak, trying to keep the flies out of your mouth, going like this. It was just, just get out of here. You know, that's how you felt anyway, just, just the way it was. When we come to this passage, I feel like there's pests that won't leave Jesus alone. And I don't know about, he's much kinder than I, but I'm going like, get out of here. That's how I feel as I'm reading this. And yet, in the midst of all that, Jesus teaches us some incredible lessons. Isn't it strange to you that the greatest enemies of God come in the flesh would be religious people, conservative religious people nonetheless. But isn't that what you find when you come to the Gospels? A couple of years ago, Sherry and I were over in uh, Lebanon, Beirut, Lebanon. We had gone over to speak at a pastor's conference, and, um, and, and I was talking with one of the, the, the national pastors there, and it just grieved my heart. I mean, in that area where they are, um, you know, they've got, You've got Muslims, you've got different religions, and you do have a, Christ, a Christian sect, which is a pretty broad term, but there's traditional Christian sect that's been there for many, 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 many centuries. And the group I was with is this vibrant evangelical group that loves Jesus, and they're trying to follow him, and they believe salvation is only by grace through faith alone in him, and they just move along. You know who's the group that creates the biggest problem for them? The Muslims? No. It's that traditional Marianite church in Beirut, Lebanon. So much so that this one fella who I was involved with, they had just built a brand new church and they were moving in and a bunch of these people came in and beat them up and pushed them out. And, and it's been over, it's been, I think now four years. Sure, how long has it been since we've been there? And they're still not in that church. They're meeting in other places, doing other kinds of things. I'm thinking like, you mean the Christian group is attacking the Christian group? Do you mean the Jews, the religious Jews are attacking Jesus? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. So watch as we work through this passage. As we look at one scenario after another scenario, and you're going to find these pesty religious group individuals that are creating problems for Jesus. But in the process, Jesus teaches us some incredible things. So notice what happens. They're actually not in the first scene, but they're going to be here very quickly. Look at chapter 5 and verse 12. The Bible says this in this first scene. And it came about that while he was in one of the cities, behold, 
There was a man full of leprosy. Or you might say there was a man covered with leprosy. Um, a couple years ago, I was at a men's retreat, had a wonderful time. And while I was there, met a gentleman who had, I, don't, I think it was eczema or psoriasis, it was something. Pretty much every part of his body that you could see, it was just filled. Scabby, red, blemished, all that kind. So he lived with that thing all the time. Now, what was nice is none of us resisted him. You know, everybody was, he's a brother in Christ and we all associate with him. In the first century, if you have leprosy, leprosy could be a variety of diseases. But they just kind of separated you off because it could be contagious. They didn't know. And this text tells us you have a man coming up and he is covered with leprosy. I mean, it's everywhere. And I don't know if his hands had gotten nubby by this time, which can happen. If parts, you know, all kinds of strange things can happen. He's desperate. When he saw Jesus, he went over and fell on his face and implored him saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He didn't question Christ's ability. Do you notice that? He just wasn't sure if there was any hope for him. So he gave it his best shot. Desperation will do anything. And he breaks through and falls down and says, I know you can. I don't know if you're willing, but I'm desperate. What does Jesus do? Remember, you can't touch lepers, right? Because it makes you unclean. Unless you're Jesus. Because Verse 13 says, purposely, Jesus doesn't heal from a distance, folks, does he? Not this guy. No way. He stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. What would that have been like? One minute, curled, oozy, and then the gone. I mean, just like that, gone. Would you be happy? I mean, so what are we learning about Jesus in this moment? Does Jesus care about people? Are you kidding me? This guy is is covered with leprosy. He's never going to make any impact on anybody in this town. Who cares about him? Jesus cares. That's who cares. And Jesus touches him to say, I am willing But Jesus knows the protocol of the day. He wrote the protocol. He wrote the Old Testament, right? But there's an order in Leviticus 13 and 14 that when you have leprosy and when you're healed, you go to the priest, he examines you for a period of time to do a sacrifice. The whole deal, I mean, it's it's all lined up. And so Jesus said, let's follow protocol. I want you to, I'm I'm not here, I'm not turning over all that system. No, no, let's, you, you just, you need to go and do it. So he ordered him to tell no one, but rather go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded for a testimony to them. I want you to go to the priest, and when he's examined you and you've explained everything and he see where you come from, he's going to have to say, what's up? And it will be a testimony to the leadership 
about me. Now, we know from Mark's gospel, the guy couldn't contain himself. He, don't tell anybody. Just go do what you're supposed to do. Oh, no, no, no. Not the, this guy, man. He's just everywhere telling people. But the news about him, verse 15, was spreading even farther and greater multitudes were gathering to hear him to be healed of their sicknesses. But he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. So Jesus is in a mode of loving people in a way that honors God. But the needs are just becoming overwhelming. He pulls away as he needs to have this personal time of prayer before his father before he enters back into ministry. But there's a problem. If you get popular, you're messing with the religious establishment. Right? So here's what's going on. I mean, and Jesus is following the law. But people are getting nervous about him. Don't mind a new guy on the block unless the block's too big. So notice what happens in this next text. I love this, this is an incredible passage. Okay, look at verse 17. And now the intensity comes with the religious leaders. It came about one day that he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So Jesus is in this, this house, coincidentally. This is not the best picture, but maybe it gives you a little idea. Okay, when all else fails, turn it on, Doug. There we go. Uh, do I like blow that every week or what? Okay. Now, this is not the best, best picture because the house would have probably been bigger than this. But it does give you this idea. You notice the stairs going up the, to the, the side? I mean, it was not all unusual to have a house something like this in antiquity. And, and you, the roof on the top, man, they would get sticks and tiles and all kinds of things. And they would pile it up and they put mud on top and mud on top of that, and push it down. So it was often about two feet thick. Okay, and so you have some kind of a scenario. It's probably bigger than this, but that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. Okay, so, so Jesus is inside, and all of these religious leaders from Galilee and Judea and even Jerusalem himself, man, they're all there because they got to check this guy out. Like, did you hear about this guy? I mean, there was this leper guy who said he was a leper. I don't know. We better find out what's happening here. So they're all sitting. Jesus is in the house. It's so filled up that you can't get to Jesus. I mean, you can hear him, I guess, but you can't get to him. So notice verse 18. Oh, and, and Jesus is there. He's teaching, and the Spirit of God's power is upon him to heal. Verse 18. Behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But you couldn't get in. There's too many people. There's people everywhere. But these friends could not be deterred. We know from another synoptic account that there was four of them, four of the men. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. So they're, they're taking this cot and they're going up the steps, right? Um, they went up on the roof and they let him down through the tile with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. Now, I don't want to read, go by that too quickly. They had to dig through a two-foot ceiling. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? So the religious leaders are sitting around and there's other people sitting around. They're listening all of a sudden. 
Are you hearing that? I think we're almost through. I don't know what they're saying. Well, you know, they're just, they're digging and, you know, and it's big enough. I mean, you've got to drop a cot down through this thing. Now, you know, so however they did that, they had robes. Henry, grab that. I will put it down. All right, what a, excuse me, we're coming, you know, coming down, coming down. I mean, I don't know what that must have been like. But, you know, they're digging that whole thing up. It's, it's open. It's, it's a form of vandalism, actually. The only guy I feel sorry for is the poor owner of the house. You know, and I, maybe they patched it up later. I like some of the roads around here. But anyway, you know, they, they, so they dropped this guy down right there on, his, on the cot. And, you know, maybe they're sweating. And going, like, I, oh, he's there. Okay. And what we know, you got to love what the, what the text says next. Look at this. Look at verse 19, uh, verse, verse 20. And seeing their faith. All of these guys knew Jesus was the answer. And if you can just get to Jesus, it's going to be okay. Now, I have to tell you, when I read the response in verse 20, um, on the surface at one level, it sounds almost a little bit anticlimactic. So, think about it. You're paralyzed. You can't move. I even open up a ceiling with a couple other guys. We drop you down right in the front of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Verse 20. And seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. That's a little disappointing to me. I'm not trying to be mean. But on the surface, doesn't it sound like, I, I don't think that's exactly what he was here for. I think what he wanted him to say is, you're healed. It's, 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 it's a really strange response. You don't find anything quite like it in any of the miracles of Jesus. And I think, scholars debate on this one, but I think that something like this is going on. Okay, so I, I have to say I think and kind of paint the picture. Somehow, this man was consciously aware of the fact that he was a sinner and probably in his case, it's very, it's very likely that his paralysis was tied into that whole situation. Now, are people sick because, they're, because they've done something wrong? Not always, right? John, in the Gospel of John, who sinned, his mother, I mean his parents or, or him? And Jesus said, neither one, but for the glory of God. So when people are sick, there's no way in the world you, you can look at them and say, that's the judgment of God. We should never say that. We don't know. But it doesn't mean it can't happen. And I would want to argue, I don't know exactly what their discussion was like, but these men realized our friend is paralyzed. I mean, maybe he was involved in some kind of street fighting and got knocked down and he just loses his anger all the time. I mean, I don't know what all is involved in it. But these guys knew something. They knew their friend's problem was much deeper than merely paralysis. They knew it was a package. They, he, they knew, he knew, he, need healing. he needed healing from the inside out. And so when Jesus says these words, he starts with the man's core problem, and then he's going to work out. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't matter where people are. Jesus knows their ultimate issue, and that's where he starts. So, Jesus declares, you know what? Whatever you've done, because you know I'm the answer, you are forgiven. 
I'm sure at that point the guy smiled. Still paralyzed. But Jesus has met his deepest need in that moment. Now, the problem is the religious leaders are here. And they didn't like what Jesus said. Right? Notice what they say. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? You know what? They were right. Right? Who can, for, who can forgive sin but God alone? You know what the answer is? No one. So they had their finger right on the right pulse. You, 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 think you, you must think you're God. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, good. Good observation. Well, no, exactly. So, so they push. And so Jesus, Jesus knows they're questioning all this. So look at what he does. He says, I have a question for you. Jesus answered the reasonings, answered them. Um, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven or rise and walk? Now, which is it easier for me to say? Somebody comes up here and they're sick. If I, is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's easier to say your sins are, what's that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because how do you know I just did that, right? It's actually harder, harder to do that, though, but it's easier to say. Jesus says, you know what? So that you know I work from the inside out. In Luke 4, when I said I've come to release those who were bound, I've came to proclaim um, freedom for people. I've come to, to give them jubilees. I've come to help the blind. I, that's who I am. I am one who mends people from the inside out. So you can know that. I will mend him on the outside so you see what I've done in his heart on the inside. And that's exactly what happens. So in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your stretcher, and go home. He doesn't even say, give the stretcher back to the guys up there in the roof who are watching all this. He says, what I want you to do, right now I want you to get up, I want you to pick up your cot, excuse yourself, and go home. And at once he rose up, took up what he'd been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And they were all seized with astonishment, and began glorifying God, and we're all filled with fear, saying, we have seen something remarkable today. First round. The religious leaders are troubled by Jesus when Jesus, in fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, as he's already said in his message back in Luke 4, Isaiah 61, I am here to do this very thing. Don't you read your Bible? Man, they're stiff offering them because you know what? They don't want change. It's safe the way things are right now. Don't mess up our religion. Jesus has a way of doing that. Gets from bad to worse, though. Verse 27. After that, he went out, and it's like, no, Jesus, Jesus, tone it down a little bit. Okay? Why don't you just go off and pray a little bit and, like, let things simmer? Oh, no, Jesus. He just, he messes things up here. After that, he went out and he noticed a tax gatherer named Levi. Okay, it's okay to notice them. They're bums. They're worse than the IRS. 
sitting in the town, if, if you work for the IRS, that's, sorry, I mean, it's good. It's, it's, I'm sure it's a reputable position, but you know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm trying to come up with an analogy. So uh, any governmental officials here, whatever. All right, the tax guy named Levi, sitting in the tax office, no problem. And he said to him, Levi, Matthew, I want you to follow me. Are you kidding me? You're selecting your group and you pick him? But it gets worse. He left everything behind, rose up, and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him and his house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at table with them. And this is more than the Pharisees can handle. I mean, look, he's already made this claim about forgiving people, healing them, inside-out kind of stuff. We have protocol in our religion. There are some people you just don't associate with. You don't eat with them. Because if you eat with them, don't you know what the Bible says? Birds of a feather flock together. It's in the Bible somewhere, right? And you don't associate with people like that because you're going to become just like them and you're going to be polluted and ritual and all the stuff. And good grief, they're having a bash with sinners and tax collectors. And it's more than they can handle. So what do they do? Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling. That's normally where it starts. At his disciples, why go directly to Jesus when you can talk about him? Saying, why do you guys eat and drink with tax gatherers and sinners? You're not supposed to do that. I love Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Was Jesus saying that the religious leaders were healthy and fine? No. You know the only people that Jesus can't help in the Gospels are the people that think they're okay. I mean, this is what happens again and again. And, 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 and so they're having this part, and Jesus is with people. He loves them because they're open to hear what he has to say. He doesn't care about their past if they have a receptive ear. He doesn't care. Well, not that he doesn't care what they've done, but it doesn't keep him from them. He moves toward them. And the religious leaders, it's just beyond them that, that he would do this. But here's the problem. If I set up a standard, it's called the Doug Finkbeiner list of standards. Guess who's the only guy that can keep them? Doug Finkbeiner. Even Mrs. Huff can't keep him. Ruth Huff can't keep him. She can't keep him. There's big problems in this world, right? But you can't keep him. And so I look down at you. Because my standards are something that I can do and you can't do. And before you know it, I have a kind of an arrogance about all people around me. Because I can and they can't. And Jesus would move into my life and he would say, Doug, I can't help you. Because you think you have it together. And these people know they need me. And I can heal them. I can do it physically, but I can do it spiritually because that's their ultimate need. The Pharisees are just kind of scratching their head because they're thinking those people aren't that important to us because they're not good and we are. And Jesus says, nobody's good. 
but I love them all. Well, they come back at them with another, another movement here. I'm going to read and just make a couple comments on this one. Let me read the text and make a couple comments. I want to get to chapter 6. They said to him, okay, we got another problem with you, Jesus, verse 33. Look, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But you guys are always into eating and drinking. I kind of like that, but... Um, why is that? Matter of fact, we know the Pharisees went beyond any kind of fasting you find in the Old Testament. They fasted two days a week. And they, they had it down. And why is it that you're not doing it? Jesus says, um, have you guys ever been to a, a, a wedding? Yeah. Do they fast at a wedding? Well, no. They celebrate. Do you know the king is here? And just like they celebrate for the bride and the groom because the groom is here, everyone celebrates, it's a time to celebrate. I have now come into this world and it's a time to celebrate. Now, I won't be with you forever. And yes, I will die and there will be sadness. And yes, people will grieve at that point. But for now, this is the year of jubilee. This is freedom. This is hope. You, you can change. I'm here. That's why my disciples don't go around fasting all the time. Because I'm here. He says, you know, I got a story for you. You take, a, take an old wine sack. It's been stretched from the wine. But, but it's, it's, it's brittle now. You pour new wine in there. You're going to bust that thing wide open. No, old wine, old wine skins, new wine, new wine skins. I want you to know something. The reason we rejoice is because things have changed. We have moved from one era to another. It's time for new wine skins. You may believe in the past that you're supposed to stiff arm yourself from people. It's new wine skins, man. We are into people. You may be, we're, we're so far from God. God has come near. Christ is here. This is new wine and new wineskins. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. You know what the problem is? Here's the indictment against them in verse 39. No one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. I have a guy in my neighborhood who's into shortwave radio. He was into it for years. My wife and I were out walking yesterday, and we walked by, and again, he's got these towering shortwave radio. And I've talked to him about it before. He used to have three of them. I mean, huge. I go by, and we have a discussion. He said, you know what? If cell phones ever go down in this country, I'll be ready. And I thought, I guess he would be. But I think I prefer a cell phone. From his perspective, the old is enough. And I'm saying, I think the new's better. <laughs> the Pharisees said, we'll just settle for the old. Yeah, but the old was pointing to the new. No, 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 no. We're just going to kind of stay right here. Isn't that sad? Do you know religious people? 
believe they can do it on their own? They're closed off from the only hope that they have, which is Jesus Christ, because they think they can do it on their own. And they haven't realized the new wine has come and the only hope is in Christ. Nope, they think the old is good enough. In chapter 6, they attack him two more times. Now it came about that on a certain Sabbath, he was passing through some grain fields and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. I have to wonder about this, folks. Look at verse 2. Where did they come from? I mean, Jesus and his disciples are going through a grain field and then it's like, pop out of nowhere, dun, 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 the Pharisees show up again. I mean, like, I'm thinking, like, where'd they come from? I don't know. It's like they jumped them. Like, here he comes through the grain field. Just watch. If he picks up a piece of grain, rubs it together, and puts it into his mouth, we're all over him. He's doing it. Let's go. I don't know. Something like that. I have a little bit of a sanctified imagination. But anyway. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you guys do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Really? You can't walk through a grain field, rub off part of the outside, and just like put a kernel in your mouth and chew on it? Oh, no. Like, that's in the Old Testament? Well, not exactly. But we're, we're layering it just to make sure. We'll just put on all these other things. And Jesus is like, man, you guys don't even understand how the Sabbath works because you think man was made for the Sabbath. But really, the Sabbath was made for man. You got it all backwards. Let me give you an example. Look, he says this. Look, Jesus said, have you not read? Now, that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a dig, isn't it? Do you guys know the Bible? Pharisees, do you know the Bible? You know? Anyway. Um, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, they entered the house of God, took and ate consecrated bread. Consecrated to who? To God. Which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests only. And David gave it to his companions. Don't you know when you read the Bible, these rituals are in service to those to whom they're ministering to. Yeah, there's consecrated bread. Yeah, it's typically for the priest. But if somebody's starving, for goodness sakes, cut it up, man, and pass it out. That's what David did. Yeah, the Sabbath is made for man. The Sabbath never said you couldn't do this. Come on, man. The guys are hungry. Like, where's your head? Where's our head? We have all our tradition. We just layered it on, and you can't. It's like a crust. It's like an onion. You can't get to anything because that's what they do. And they're ticked. I think I put something up here. Uh, look at this. When the, for this next story. And it came about on another Sabbath, verse 6. Oh, Jesus declares in verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And it came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered and the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely. Do you, does this not set, sound like a setup to you? Okay, this grain thing didn't go so well. 
Let's have him in the synagogue teaching. And you know that guy whose hand is withered that can't use his hand? Yeah, somebody bring him in. Let's pluck him right down front and let's see what he's going to do on the Sabbath. Did they care about that man? No interest in that guy. He was merely somebody to use against Jesus to support their own position. That was it. Not all Jews believe this, but notice this is, these are some views that you can find in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in what's called the Mishnah, some Jewish writings from about 200 A.D. Dead Sea Scrolls, the Bible, uh, the Bible, sorry, my bad. The Dead Sea Scrolls, not the Bible. Dead Sea Scrolls says this. Any living human who falls into a body of water or a cistern shall not be helped out with ladder, rope, or other instrument because it's a Sabbath day. So what you need to do is leave them in there and say, hang in there for 24 hours, we'll be back. Because the Sabbath was not made for man. Man was made for the Sabbath. So there. Right? Mishnah says this. They do not straighten the limb of a child or set a broken bone. This is on the Sabbath. He whose hand or foot was dislocated should not pour cold water over them. Not today. So you're on your way to the synagogue. You twist your ankle. Live with it for 24 hours. That's what it says. There was this mentality where a tradition was layered, 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 so much so that its very purpose was lost. And these guys have the same attitude. Notice what happens. So they set this guy right there in front. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said to the man with the withered hand, Rise, come forward. And he rose and came forward, so Jesus put him right in the midst. And he said to them, those religious leaders sitting around. Well, he, after, I'm sorry, I, I ask you, he said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, to do good, which is what I want to do to this man, or to do harm, because that's exactly what you're doing. You are using this man for your own purposes. To save a life or to destroy it. Is it possible for religious people to be so bound up in the religion that they can't see the needs of people? Can that happen? Yeah. And all they could see with this, this guy is somebody to use against Jesus. And Jesus says, this is somebody to do good to. To love. Do you not do good on the Sabbath? Well, not if you believe this. After looking around at them, wouldn't you love to see what that looked like? He's in their midst. He makes this statement. And I don't know, does he eyeball each one of them? You know, they maybe get a little bit of sheepish when he does that. And after looking at them all, he said, stretch out your hand. And here is a guy who's, we, we had a good friend who shattered her wrist about three weeks ago and was told by one physician that nothing they could do but cast it, which means that hand would have been totally frozen. 
Fortunately, another surgeon said something else, which means you good reason to get a double opinion. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, and, but that thing would have been frozen. But here's a guy whose hand was frozen. It was done. Can you imagine Jesus said, stretch out that hand? And, and a guy who for years was not able to do it. What does that mean? If, you, if you're in the medical arena, what's that mean? Well, you know, I mean, that would have been unbelievable. And so everybody rejoiced, right? Not exactly. But they themselves, verse 11, were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Can you be that set in your religion? That you can't see God at work? Yeah. Very saddening. So, what can we say? As Jesus' authoritative and compassionate ministry to needy people is repeatedly interrupted by the religious critics, I mean, Jesus is coming on and saying, I'm Messiah. I love, I forgive, and I love people. I don't know where they are or what they, I mean, I know where they are and what they've done. Actually, I do know all that, but I love them. In spite of all that, I love them and I want to be with them. What he exposes is arrogance and legalism. If I look at anybody sitting here before me today and just pick somebody out and say, you know what? You're not important. Why would I do that? A whole host of reasons. But one reason would be that I'm arrogant. And I am better than you. And Jesus would say, then I can't help you, Doug. And another reason would be, I've got all my traditions which I've added to the scripture that I do that you can't do. And so therefore, you have no value. I don't even take time for you. Now, folks, I don't think anybody sitting in here would be that bad to be like the Pharisees at that level. However, don't you think sometimes there's a little Pharisee in all of us if we're not really, really careful? Can I look down on people? If there's anybody I look at and I say, unimportant, don't have the time for them. The problem is not them. The problem is me. What is going on in my soul that I could not value somebody for which who Christ died and loves and wants to minister to through me? But if you're like me, I hate to say it, I do it sometimes. I do it. And it's, it's terrible and it's proud and it's arrogant and it's all that stuff. And I do it. Four things and then I'll let you go. Four questions. Does Jesus' exclusive authority to forgive sinners and to interpret the scripture trouble you? Now, for most of us in here, I would say that probably is not the case. I would hope. You're a forgiven follower of Christ. But perhaps you're visiting with us. Perhaps you're a little bit uneasy with the fact that Jesus hangs out with just all these kinds of people. And all I can tell you is this. That's who Jesus is into. Never in a way that he approves of anybody's sin. That's not the point, is it? Jesus doesn't 
Jesus doesn't go with somebody and say, hey, I continue in your sin. Jesus comes to say, you know what? I can actually set you free from that. No, no, no. It's a very different stance. But maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I'm better. I don't, you know, I can tell you. Until you see yourself as desperately sick spiritually, Christ can't help you. But if your stance is, I am undone, I have no hope, there's all kinds of possibilities in Jesus Christ. Does Jesus' persistent love for bad and broken people disturb us? Well, it makes me feel a little bit uneasy sometimes, doesn't it? Could people ever look at my life and in a derogatory way say, Finkbeiner is a friend of sinners and tax collectors? Do I live in such a way that people could even say that? In 1955, do you know the name Francis Schaeffer? He's with the Lord now. Francis Schaeffer started what's called Labrie Ministries. Still goes on around the world. And Labrie in, in French uh, just means shelter. And man, the stories he and his wife Edith went through. Because what they did is they just said, we are going to open our house up for anybody that wants to just be with us, talk about Jesus with all of their problems and all their questions, just come. And before you knew it, they had... 10, 15 people just coming in for periods of a month, two, three months, just living there. He said, you know, they ruined our wedding gifts. They vomited on our floors because they were doing drugs and drinking. And he said, it was just. And they came to faith in Christ. And they grew. And they started Libri groups, not just in Switzerland, but over here in England and over here in Germany. And it began to spread all away, all across. Because a man and his wife said, I don't, man, I don't mind being called a friend of sinners. I don't know what it looks like in your life, brothers and sisters. But don't be afraid to mix, mix and be with the people who need Jesus, who often are the ones who will say, we know we need him. Let's talk. Do we allow religious traditions to hamper us from ministry to others? I'm not talking about biblical truth. Biblical truth is biblical truth. You don't mess with that. But don't we layer? My pet peeve, my little application. Be very, very, very careful. Will we, as forgiven Christ followers, follow Jesus into a world of needy people? I hope we will. We may be misunderstood by the religious establishment, but that's okay. Let us follow Jesus and minister to people. Father.